Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. With three amazing theme parks, spectacular resort hotels, and unforgettable dining and entertainment, Universal Orlando Resort is where you, yes, you, can vacation at the next level. Ooh, we're having a great time in our visit here at Universal Orlando Resort. We love it. Go to www.universalorlando.com to plan your visit today. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. You ever wonder what uh, Percy Weasley is doing all summer long alone by himself in his room? I do too. But if that's not the kind of content you're looking for, please check out the recapables. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. It really does. It really, really does. If you don't yet know why Harry likely developed a lifelong taste aversion to violet pudding at the tender age of 12, please proceed with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. Hang on. Harry muttered to Ron. There's an empty chair at the staff table. Where's Snape? Professor Severus Snape was Harry's least favorite teacher. Harry also happened to be Snape's least favorite student. Cruel, sarcastic, and disliked by everybody except the students from his own house, Slytherin, Snape taught potions. Maybe he's ill, said Ron hopefully. Maybe he's left, said Harry. Because he missed out on the Defense Against the Dark Arts job again. Oh, he might have been sacked, said Ron enthusiastically. I mean, everyone hates him. Oh, maybe, said a very cold voice right behind them. He's waiting to hear why you two didn't arrive on the school train. Binge Mode Harry Potter. Woo! I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Oh, what a great website. What a great website. Great. So great. Joining me today. Yes. Now that he's finished causing serious damage to an old and valuable tree. It's a very old, very valuable tree. I apologize, but it tried to kill me. It's Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Hello, Mal. Yeah. That tree did more damage to me, but no matter. Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we'll explore every facet of the Harry Potter universe is finally underway. Whether you prefer travel by flu powder or flying car. I'm not a big flu out powder. Out on all of these. Yeah, I'm out on the flu powder for the simple fact. You're an asthmatic. You can't be near that Exactly. Ash. And just like it happened with Harry, you know, you're supposed to say it and then the ash is flying around and gets in your mouth. Come on. Please subscribe on <laughs> Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Five Stars for binge mode, please. Please. Please also please. follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. And join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, which is a great place to swap notes on various types of flesh-eating slug repellent gross. We see you in Nocturne Alley, Hagrid. Disgusting. Don't think we don't see you. So far on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we have explored the Sorcerer's Stone book and film mm-hmm. and flown straight into the heart of the Quidditch-verse. And on today's episode, we are diving deep into the first five chapters of the second book in this series, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, 
Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. I want to reiterate this so everyone is clear. While Chamber's opening five chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. 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 On details from all seven books, all eight films, and the wider Potter canon, we're taking the entire series into deep. account from the moment we climb into the Ford Anglia. That's right. Deeper. <laughs> so punch that invisibility booster. It's broken. And- <laughs> It's broken. It's not working. <laughs> Grab some nice fat toffees because it's time to head to Gryffindor Tower. Mal, I know what date is. Well done. So you finally learned the days right. of the week. Today's your Chamber of Secrets launch day, which means. It's time to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in chapters one through five by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot, the Hogwarts Express. Ah, Chapter one, the worst birthday. Happy birthday, my guy, Harry. Happy birthday, Harry. Summer break on Privet Drive has been slightly better than Harry's previous time with the Dursleys. He's desperately alone, but they're kind of leaving him alone because they don't know that he's not allowed to use magic outside of school and are therefore terrified of him. Vernon keeps his nephew's magical things under lock and key, even Hedwig. Harry misses his friends, Ron, Hermione, and Hagrid desperately, and that ache is made all the more intense by the pointed lack of correspondence from them. Certainly, the Dursleys won't be doing anything for Harry's birthday. Vernon has an important guest coming over for dinner, selling drills, and he wants Harry to remain unseen and unheard and out of mind. Outside, thinking back on recent events and feeling lonely and sad, Harry sees eyes staring at him from inside a bush. Later, after a series of grueling chores... Given by Aunt Petunia, he goes up to his room. But someone or something is in his bed. Chapter two. Dobby's warning. The Dobster is here. Introducing Dobby. Harry Potter. (laughs) A house elf. Dobby is a quite strange looking creature and he acts strangely too. He is here because he has something to tell Harry, but he can't quite seemed to come out with it, and his halting speech is interrupted by fits of violent self-punishment. Dobby serves a certain family who he will not name, but we are clear on one thing. He reveres Harry, and he has come to warn him not to return to Hogwarts. When Harry asks why, Dobby says that a terrible plot is afoot there. He who must not be named isn't behind it. And that is crucial. That exact language, he who must not be named, is not behind it. Dobby insists in a wink, wink, nod, nod, I'm trying to tell you something way, before admitting over another burst of self-flagellation that he has been intercepting Harry's letters. Ah, his friends have been trying to write to him after all. Dobby promises to return the correspondence if Harry will promise not to return to Hogwarts. Harry refuses, and Dobby ruins Aunt Petunia's beautiful pudding in order to get Harry into trouble. Enough trouble, he hopes, to keep him from returning to school. A message from the Ministry falls into Vernon's hands, and the Dursleys find out, oh, wait a second, you're not allowed to use magic because you're underage? Oh, Wow. Notable. Furious, Vernon locks Harry in his room and installs bars over the window. Wow. (laughs) Chill guy. (laughs) Three days later, hungry and alone, Harry dreams of being in a zoo, and when he awakens, Ron is outside the window. Chapter 3. The Burrow. 
Ron is outside the window hanging out the back of a car because uh, the car is flying, and that's why it's level with Harry's window, the flying Ford Anglia piloted by Ron's twin brothers, Fred and George. You're on a rescue mission. Ron has grown concerned that Harry hasn't written him back all summer, and after pulling the bars off the windows and briefly struggling with an irate Vernon, the Weasleys successfully bust Harry out of Privet Drive. Next stop. The Weasley homestead. Doesn't make sense. Vernon's like, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, and now you're leaving? I'm going to stop you. The one thing he hates more than Harry's presence is the idea of Harry being happy. It's unbelievable. When the flying Weasley mobile touches down at the burrow, the boys are greeted by a furious Molly Weasley. Sneaking out! No, no! Stealing the family car! Oh, hello, Harry. (laughs) After a time, Arthur returns home from work. Hard day at work, wipes off the brow, sits down, been chasing around stray muggle artifacts all day and night. And he sits down and thinking he's going to put his feet up. And Molly's like, hey, what about this car? Why does it fly? <laughs> Arthur, by the way, secretly enchanted it. And she tells him about the privet drive jailbreak and subsequent cross-country flight in said enchanted car. Arthur is impressed, but then chides the boys after Molly shoots him a look. Harry finds the domestic chaos and cramped, comfy confines of the burrow delightful. Those garden gnomes, though. Just kill them. <laughs> Just snap wow. the snap the neck. What a take! I just think if you're gonna fling her around, just snap that neck of the garden gnome and get him out of there. What did those leathery little potatoes ever do to you? They fucking up the garden. It is tough. I will say that <laughs> that denoming in essence boils down to let's give these guys concussions. Also, are we not magical? Like, can we do it without having to touch them? It's gross. It's all having. It's actual- all about that wind up and that arm yeah, rotation. You know. <laughs> Tune in tomorrow for our entire pod on denoming. Yeah. Chapter four, at Flourish and Blotz. Harry's first attempt at traveling via flu powder goes slightly, slightly wide. And instead of Diagon Alley, he ends up face down, bridge of his glasses snapped in a gloomy store in shady Nocturne Alley. Borgen and Burks sells artifacts associated with dark magic. And who should walk in? But Lucius Malfoy and his son, Draco. What a quinky dink. <laughs> Harry's classmate and nemesis. The ministry, we learn, has been cracking down of late, raiding the homes of wizards and witches suspected of harboring dark items. The Malfoys are there to sell. And after they leave, Harry slips out of the shop, runs into Hagrid, and is quickly reunited with the Weasley clan. After a few diversions, Harry, Ron, and Hermione head to Flourish and Blotts for their textbook retrieval. Gilderoy Lockhart, this year's Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher and a Poppin' J celebrity wizard, is in the store, signing copies of his autobiography, Magical Me. He is delighted to see Harry and turns the chance meeting into a photo op. The Malfoys walk up. Draco gets in a really pretty decent poverty burn. It's mean. It's very mean, but how come Draco's the only one with the burns? (laughs) Harry and Hermione have to hold back an incense Ron. Arthur... Walks up, tries to cool things down, but next thing you know, he and Lucius are swinging at each other like common muggles. Common Books muggles. are tumbling from the bookshelves. Hagrid walks up, pulls them apart. Arthur, chastened, leads his family and Harry back to the burrow. What must the Grangers have thought? Yeah, they were like, wow, this is <laughs> wild. What? <laughs> Chapter 5. The Whomping Willow. Summer break is over. Harry and the Weasleys, after several false starts, yeah. travel in the... secretly extended automobile to King's Cross, arriving just in time for the train. Everyone goes through, but when Harry and Ron reach the barrier last, crash. The wall does not abide. It is as solid as a wall should be. Panicked at missing the train, 
they remember the car, the flying car parked right outside and apparently forget everything they know about hiding magic from muggles. The boys take to the air with Ron at the wheel. Despite the busted invisibility booster, they dip down to get their bearings and see the Hogwarts Express threading across the countryside below, and they follow it. Euphoric, soaring above the clouds, sunlight filling the car, troubling amounts of candy Mm. filling their mouths. Mm. Hours pass. The sun sets. Now we're thirsty because all we've been eating is candy. It's getting cold. (laughs) The Anglia's engine is making a bad sound, and now it's making a louder sound, and now it's nighttime. And then in the distance, they can see Hogwarts. Just a shadow, just a silhouette. But by now, the car is like just full on crashing. Ron manages to miss the castle, gut over the lake, careens into the waiting branches and bows of the Whomping Willow, a particularly violent and ill-tempered species of tree. The impact snaps Ron's wand. The Anglia, annoyed, frees itself from the willow, ejects Harry and Ron, and limps angrily into the forest. The boys amble up to the castle steps to a window where they can see the sorting ceremony already underway in the Great Hall. And there... They are apprehended by Professor Severus Snape. The flight of the Anglia, it seems, was witnessed by muggles. Uh Uh-oh. So now the ministry may get involved. Oh, boy, we are in trouble. (laughs) McGonagall is not happy, and Dumbledore is something worse than furious. He's disappointed. Uh Uh-oh. Harry and Ron escape expulsion with only detention and no points deducted by the chronic gambler Nerva McGallion. Unbelievable. <laughs> McGallion's like, listen, well, we were not going to start out in a hole. So let's just, it's fine. Nobody has to know about this. They return to Gryffindor Tower as conquering heroes, despite Hermione's harangue. Famous Jason Concepcion oh can't even go into a bookshop without making the front page. True, by the way. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of the first five chapters of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets is obstacles. Chapter one, worst birthday. Once upon a time, not that long ago, in fact, just one book ago, in the beginning of that book, Privetry was Harry's prison. That was before Hogwarts, before magic, witches, wizards, before Quidditch, before he could literally fly in cars and on brooms. Post-Hogwarts, Privet is an obstacle, yes. A test of endurance, yes. But is life there not marginally better than it was before now? Sure, yes. Harry desperately misses his friends. That said, the Dursleys are terrified of him, which is kind of good. They're worried that Harry aggrieved might waggle his wand and turn them all into bacon strips or something. And that fear that Harry might take revenge or otherwise lash out is in a way a tacit admission by the Dursleys that they have treated Harry like shit, right? Of course, Harry being underage cannot use magic off grounds. They don't need to know that. From the book, Dudley says, Why are you staring at the hedge, Harry? I'm trying to decide the best spell to set it on fire. And after Dudley protests that no, Harry... Now, Dad said you're not allowed to use magic in the house. Harry, in a fiery voice, says, Jiggery-pokery! Hocus-pocus! Squiggly-wiggly! And Dudley flees, screaming back into them. These are the things we might imagine that Harry's been trying to do all summer. But it's still Vernon's house. Vernon's rules. His control over Harry has been steadily slipping ever since the owls began bombarding them with letters. So he stoops to more aggressive measures, throwing more obstacles in his abnormal nephew's path locking Harry's wizarding gear in the cupboard under the stairs and placing a padlock on Hedwig's cage. That's 
Mean. Mean. Hedwig has to suffer and endure can, a can, lot in these chapters. That's mean. Terrible. Truly terrible. Yeah. Vernon Dursley, not a good dude. So while the Dursleys may be slightly less actively abusive towards Harry than they were before they had reason to fear his powers, life is pretty miserable right now for our guy. You know, let's not forget this chapter, which is our first moment back with Harry after Sorcerer's Stone ends with his triumphant defeat of Quirldemort. This chapter's called The Worst Birthday. Harry is not happy. The Dursleys' fear of Harry's magic may give him some rope, but it also leads to the kind of existence where he can't even speak freely for fear of triggering an outburst. You know, this is the other side of knowing you exercise that kind of control over somebody. Like the above incident that you just mentioned with Dudley or the... I warned you I will not tolerate mention of your abnormality under this roof screech from Vernon in response to Harry's very innocent, almost accidental, you've forgotten the magic word line over breakfast. With Mr. and Mrs. Mason coming over for that big drill push dinner, Harry knows that his role is to, quote, be in my bedroom making no noise and pretending I'm not there. In literally just a matter of weeks, Harry has gone from being the hero of Hogwarts, quote, back to being treated like a dog that had rolled in something smelly. And after Harry rises to Dudley's taunt and earns punishment from Aunt Petunia in the form of this day-long set of grueling chores, he thinks to himself, wish they could see famous Harry Potter now, he thought savagely, as he spread manure on the flower beds, his back aching, sweat running down his face. Every ounce of Harry's reality this summer is an obstacle that challenges what he had come to believe after one difficult but blissful year at Hogwarts that his life could be. And that's kind of the rub. That's the thing. It's not just the presence of the Dursleys. It's the absence of Harry's new life in these summer weeks. Quote, he missed Hogwarts so much it was like having a constant stomachache. Locking away his possessions, padlocking Hedwig, those are not insignificant moves on Vernon's part. They're not petty. They have real consequences because they keep Harry totally isolated from the wizarding world. You know, without Hedwig, he can't send outpost correspondence to his friends, who, by the way, he hasn't heard from all summer. No cards, Harry thinks to himself, no presence, and he would be spending the evening pretending not to exist. He gazed miserably into the hedge. He had never felt so lonely. Think about that. Harry is coming off an incredible year, learning who he is, defeating a foe, and he's deeply sad and desperately unhappy. He misses Ron and Hermione more than anything, and though he doesn't yet know the truth behind what he is just perceiving as their silence, as their absence, the upshot is the same. It's that he's forced to sit day after day in this miserable house surrounded by these miserable people facing one of the truest and most debilitating obstacles that anyone can face in life. Loneliness. You know, he is lonelier now than he has ever been before because now he actually knows what real friendship is. Now he actually knows what he's missing. And it's that kind of loneliness that filters into and corrupts every other aspect of one's life. Harry is so desperate for word from a fellow witcher wizard that he finds himself actually thinking that he wouldn't mind hearing from Draco, quote, just to be sure it hadn't all been a dream. He is so desperate for some proof, some confirmation other than the recurring nightmares that he's having about Voldemort that this was all real. Chapter two, Dobby's warning. The Dobster. Oh, the Dobster. With our introduction to Dobby, we discover yet another set of obstacles, both for Harry and for house elves. Shout out to the spewheads. Spewheads. Very, <laughs> listen, we support your mission. Right away, we find that house elves are treated and indeed are conditioned to think of themselves as inferior. 
Harry, after discovering Dobby in his bedroom, asks the house elf if he'd like to sit down. And Dobby said, sit down? Never, never, ever. And Harry says, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you or anything. Offend Dobby? Dobby has never been asked to sit down by a wizard like an equal. Shortly thereafter, Dobby begins beating his brains in. And we learn that a house elf must obey the family that he or she serves, may not even speak poorly of that family, and that the result of said infractions is the self-punishment which we are reading about. Dobby again. The wizard family Dobby serves, sir. Dobby is a house elf bound to serve one house and one family forever. Clearly, since Dobby is visiting Harry, he is, if not outright breaking the rules that bind him. At least he's figured out some way to evade these obstacles in spirit, right? And Harry says, do they know you're here? Oh, no, sir, no. Dobby will have to punish himself most grievously for coming to see you. Dobby will have to shut his ears in the oven door for this. God, Dobby, calm down. The conversation eventually moves to Harry's run-in with Quirrell and Voldemort in the end of last term. Harry, of course, downplays it, which, like everything Harry does, greatly impresses Dobby. Then Dobby reveals the reason he's come, to warn Harry in the strongest of house elf terms against returning to Hogwarts, Dobby says. Harry must stay where he is safe. He is too great, too good to lose. If Harry goes back to Hogwarts, he will be in mortal danger. Then after a few more bouts of self-flagellation, Dobby tells Harry that he is the reason the letters have not been getting through. The elf thought, hey, maybe if Harry's not getting his friend's letters and he'd think they'd forgotten him and dismayed just wouldn't go back to school. That's a miscalculation, by the way, Dobby. And so Harry is seemingly back to where he was before, isolated at the Dursleys as the world spins on without him. Love the hustle from Dobby here, though. Love he's the heart. Try, he's trying. <laughs> They're not that smart, the house oh, elves. Oh, mean! I'm just saying. He's smart enough. All makes a counterpoint. He's too smart. You know, he thinks he's given these, like, mm. expert clues and that Harry will be able to piece it together. He's overly confident in Harry's ability. Yeah, I think that's— It's I really on Harry. He's, you know, the house <laughs> elf is, like, so steeped in the magical tradition that he just can't understand Harry's perspective. Harry literally knows nothing about house elves. It is like, an, he's just learning now. Yeah, an stuff. obstacle for Dobby, too, your yeah. point about the, that being a miscalculation. This is a tragedy, yeah. but he doesn't understand the pull of friendship. He he's never gotten to experience that, so how could he know what weight that would have on Harry? Dobby's visit provides us and Harry alike with useful perspective. Dobby says, A house elf must be set free, sir. And the family will never set Dobby free. Dobby will serve the family until he dies, sir. Eek. Dobby is clearly not facing a temporary obstacle. He is staring down a lifelong sentence of servitude. If nothing about his circumstances changes, dun, dun, dun. Harry says, and I thought I had a bad staying here for another four weeks. This <laughs> makes the Dursleys sound almost human. Dobby is bound, and as admirably as he is fighting to break through those restraints so that he can try to protect Harry, the nature of his enslavement is an obstacle that he cannot fully beat, even when Harry, who Dobby is there to warn, there to save, asks him point blank yeah. whether you know who was behind this. And Dobby says, Not, not, he who must not be named, sir. And Dobby is saying this with his eyes wide, indicating that he's clearly trying to give Harry some sort of crucial hint, the key that will unlock this all. Harry is uh, 
not picking up on it. And this is a we, very deep cut. To be fair, it from, it's, it's like, like way too deep. Literally your first conversation ever. You're asking a lot for this dude to be able to interpret the width of your eyes yeah. to know what your what secret message. Also, you're it's like to nobody pass. even wants to say the name Voldemort, and now you're going to be like, actually, the name that he had before this. <laughs> That you don't even you don't even know about this. Right. We will later learn that Dobby's rationale in this moment was that before Tom Riddle was Voldemort, he could be freely named. So not he must not be named. Okay, Dobster. Good effort. But the obstacles in his place, as hard as he is trying to navigate them, ultimately are preventing him from explaining outright, unambiguously, clearly what is about to transpire with the diary and with the Chamber of Secrets. After the hubbub with Dobby interferes with Vernon entertaining his drill guests when Aunt Petunia's pudding is smashed, landing Harry an improper use of magic warning from the Ministry, and thus giving up the game about not being able to do magic at home with the Dursleys, Harry is consigned to his room. Crucial, by the way, that this infraction will be held against Harry later, years later. Years and years Oh, you've already got an offense on your record. That's That's, come on. I thought they took that off anyway. His uncle even goes as far as to install bars over the window and put a cat flap in the door so that the Jersey can push through small amounts of mostly cold soup and let him out to use the bathroom. But what makes this situation an obstacle instead of, say, a prison, which it appears to be, as it would have been before Hogwarts, is Harry can count on real magic, friendship. Harry dreams that he's caged in a zoo with a card-reading underage wizard and people are watching him through the bars as he starves. This is not the first time we've seen Harry and the caged animal imagery paired. Remember, there's Hedwig in these chapters and, of course, there's Harry identifying with the snake in the zoo and Sorcerer's Stone. The Dursleys have placed physical obstacles between Harry and freedom. Those have morphed into mental obstacles, preventing Harry from finding peace and happiness. But all is not lost, not even close to lost, guys. Because after three days locked in a room, Harry awakens to his friend Ron rattling on the bar windows. Chapter three, The Burrow. There are very few obstacles that can resist a flying car piloted by a pair of mad magical twins. Window bars, certainly not among the obstacles that can withstand this vehicle and the people in it. Ron, who is gravely concerned that he hadn't heard from his bestie all summer, has flown to the rescue in the family Ford Anglia, which... Arthur, custom-pimped without Molly's knowledge, and Fred and George naturally are along for the ride. Ron says, what's been going on? Why haven't you been answering my letters? I've asked you to stay about 12 times. And then Dad came home and said you'd got an official warning for using magic in front of muggles. Credit to Ron for his perseverance and his friendship, and credit to Fred and George for not being bound by the same misguided wizard-first conventions that so many of their fellow magical folks are. They're there with lockpicks. They're there with ropes. They are ready. Fred says, a lot of wizards think it's a waste of time knowing this sort of muggle trick, but we feel their skills worth learning, even if they are a bit slow. And then it's a Western-style movie jailbreak. Ropes around the bar, floor that Anglia, load up the gear, and after a brief delay to retrieve Hedwig, who Harry unforgivably forgot. Truly awful. What is go- oh, what is happening? Harry, come on. And the ensuing tussle with Vernon, who, as discussed, tries to prevent Harry from fleeing, despite presumably never wanting to see Harry again. <laughs> again, that, that internal dissonance. On the one hand, I'd love to never see you again. On the other hand, the prospect of you being with friends somewhere you're happy. Also terrible. And away we go. Obstacle cleared. Hatred. No match for friendship in this story. On the flight, Harry tells the Weasley boys about Dobby's warning, and the twins find it fishy, especially the part 
about Dobby not telling Harry who is behind the threat. That is, uh, it's a good point. It's like, like he gave you a lot of information to just stop right there. I know. He like, told you a and lot. And then he stops. But not that. And he did something with his eyes. Anyway, <laughs> Harry says he doesn't think Dobby could tell him even if he wanted to. Fred and George helpfully fill in Harry about how the whole house elf thing works. Hint, it's slavery. Harry says, what, you think he was lying to me, Fred? Well, put it this way. House elves have got powerful magic of their own, but they can't usually use it without their master's permission. I reckon old Dobby was sent to stop you coming back to Hogwarts. Someone's idea of a joke. Can you think of anyone at school with a grudge against you? Mm, let me think for Draco Malfoy. Uh, you know, the same Draco Malfoy you spent all last year fucking with Harry and Hermione and Ron. That's who. Come on. It's not that hard. Dobby intended for his visit to introduce an obstacle preventing Harry from returning to school. But Harry's lack of access to all the facts is the real obstacle. How can he understand what's happening when he doesn't have all or even a significant fraction of the information? <laughs> The thing he's that Dobby is earnestly warning Harry about, the people who Fred and George think sent Dobby as a ploy, the true obstacle here to Harry's safety and happiness is obscured. But the burrow, which Harry will by chapter's end call, quote, the best house I've ever been in. And which the movies will blow up. <laughs> for, for one of, <laughs> truly one of the oddest choices in the entire in the entire run of the film. So just really bizarre. The burrow is the anti-obstacle. It yes. is the portal that brings Harry back into the wizarding world and his burgeoning sense of self. Only, it's not the smoothest arrival. No shouts to Mrs. Weasley, who we cherish here at Binge Mode. But, you know, every mother occasionally proves to be an obstacle to her kids' yeah. free will. And also a good thing, because we need you, moms. That's right. Thanks for keeping us alive, Mrs. Molly's Weasley. Molly's great. Molly's Molly can wield that wand. Sex I, freak. Oh, oh, whoa! <laughs> this took a turn, talking about her maternal instincts. But, saying. you know. Molly had been pumping them out since <sighs> she was a fifth year, I think, if you do the math on it. We at Binge Mode ride hard for Molly Weasley. So and she. Jason wants to ride hard <laughs> oh with God. Molly Weasley. <laughs> When the boys return home from their flight, it is to face the startling wrath of the person who would, if she had her druthers, have kept them grounded. From the book, all three of Mrs. Weasley's sons were taller than she was, but they cowered as her rage broke over them. Damn. I'll let you do the speech here. (laughs) Bed's empty. No note. Gone, gone. Could have crashed. Out of my mind with worry. Did you care? Never as long as I've lived... You wait until your father gets home. We've never had trouble like this from Bill or Charlie or Percy. Perfect Percy, muttered Fred. You could do with taking a leaf out of Percy's book. You could have died. You could have been seen. You could have lost your father his job. It seemed to go on for hours. Mrs. Weasley had shouted herself hoarse before she turned on Harry, who backed away. I'm very pleased to see you, Harry, dear. Come in and have some breakfast. I love the way this is written with all the M dashes, that staccato nature, so you can so clearly feel her speech pattern and hear the crispness and the the anger. It's just, it's perfection. Also, I would love to have Mrs. Weasley prepare me a meal. Me too. Just uh, the way she butters that bread. And just to be clear, I I am literally talking about the way she butters bread, but when Jason says it, it is a euphemism. She's a MILF. (laughs) Molly, I'd like to fuck. Anyway. Harry learns that Mr. Weasley, meanwhile, works in the misuse of Muggle Artifacts Office, chasing down Muggle baiters and dangerous objects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's often required to do memory charms, Lockhart foreshadowing, 
Though we witness his enthusiasm for muggle innovations and his work time again in these introductory chapters, plugs, telephones, pound notes, oh my, these Love muggles that. are so ingenious. Uh, let me just say, like, for a guy who studies muggles, he knows nothing. Like, he knows <laughs> barely anything. That is a great <laughs> point. Wow. You know what? I have never thought he about that. Nothing. That his job is the misuse of muggle artifacts, and yet Harry has to explain how telephones work to him. Incredible point. It's wild. It's wild. Mr. Weasley's work illuminates the obstacles facing muggle advocates every day. Chamber reveals a great deal about prejudice in the wizarding world. And from our first exposure to Arthur, it's clear. He's one of the people trying to tear down these barriers and forge a more harmonious union between magical and non-magical beings. Although, often quite in patronizing fashion. That is neither here nor there. He's He's got a great heart. And he doesn't mean it like that. But yeah. he's often like, oh, my God, you muggles are so amazing. What is that? Did you just what did you just do? Chapter four at Flourish and Blots. I would love to go to a wizarding bookstore. I would, oh too. It'd be great. The strangest thing about life at the borough? Quote, everybody there seemed to like him. This is new for Harry. He is not used to this sensation. Here at the borough, Harry is not facing the same literal physical obstacles that he had at Privet Drive, you know, bars on his window, locks on the door. He's also not facing the mental and emotional obstacles that he faced there from the total lack of support and understanding that greeted him every day. Mrs. Weasley dotes on him. Mr. Weasley engages him in stimulating conversation, often about telephones and plugs. It's, Listen, Mr. Weasley's got to stop those oh teapots and the, the shrinking keys. He's busy. He's too busy. He's to li- Mr. Weasley them. has never literally seen anything having to do with muggles. He's studying them all the time. He's like, oh, my God, what is that? <laughs> Tell me more. Ginny, dear sweet Ginny, too shy to speak in front of Harry, dropping her porridge bowl and dunking her elbow in butter instead. Every other member of the household is overjoyed to have Harry around, except, of course, for Percy, who is... Too busy masturbating vigorously Fish, yeah, in just his bedroom to even notice. that thing. <laughs> Quote, he's not himself. This is the twins assessing their brother's mysterious behavior. It's not himself. His exam results came the day before you did. 12 hours. And he hardly gloated at all. Dun, dun, dun. Imagine taking Arthur to like a sex shop or something. Showing him a dildo. Oh my, what's the, oh wow. <laughs> what's this? What? If I only had this, I wouldn't have had Jenny, Fred, George, or Ron. The subject of the Malfoys in the prior chapter <laughs> raised an obstacle of particular sensitivity to the Weasley family. That cash. Cold, hard cash. George. Normal, normal binge mode transition from yeah. sex toys to George. debilitating family poverty. George says, <laughs> yeah, mom's always wishing we had a house elf to do the ironing, said George. But all we've got is a lousy old ghoul in the attic and gnomes all over the garden. House elves come with big old manors and castles and places like that. You wouldn't catch one in our house. And this theme carries on in this chapter when our friends prepare to set off for Diagon Alley for this year's school supplies, including all seven. 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 Where is Dumbledore here to be like, Gilderoy? No. You cannot assign every book to the students and make them all pay this much money. Dumbledore, in retrospect, not doing a great job all the time. (laughs) Jason, Hogwarts is the safest place there is. I mean, Lockhart is... (laughs) An ass, literally a fucking clown. Okay, for the first year, the teacher had Voldemort coming out of his head. Literally, Voldemort was coming out of his head. You know what I mean? Like another one is a dark wizard in disguise. It's like, where is my guy? What is happening? And then Lockhart is literally just a fucking buffoon. <laughs> anyway, George again. Don't know how mom and dad are going to afford all our school stuff this year. Five sets of Lockhart books. 
And Janine needs robes and a wand and everything. By the way, seven of Lockhart books. George R. R. Martin, are you listening? Wow. Gilderoy Lockhart is just pumping those things out. Let's go. To be fair, he's <laughs> he's doing that through the aid of deception, betrayal, and fraud. Yes. That's but George, true. whatever you got to do to get it done. Get on. Come on. Harry said nothing. He felt a bit awkward. Stored in an underground vault in Gringotts in London was a small fortune that his parents had, actually a large fortune, that his parents had let him. What if instead of saying nothing, Left he him. had said something specifically? Do you guys want some of Do this? you guys want some? This is, I, I will say, one of the biggest issues I've had, I have with what Harry has done with his money over the course of the series. He stakes Fred and George with the joke shop. Fine. Not a problem. Can we break off Arthur and Molly some money so they can, like, get the borough fixed up and pay the mortgage or whatever it is? Yeah. Like, you're going to give these idiots money? We have enough moments with Harry and Ron to understand that, like, the shame and the embarrassment that Ron feels yeah. would presumably extend to his whole family. But Harry not saying, like, in a moment like this, you guys have taken me in. You're caring Literally for me. Literally have I'm gonna taken me in. I'm going to do something more than just buy Ron a strawberry and peanut butter ice cream <laughs> I know, right? Instead of me helping you guys out, what if I just buy Ron, like, 40 pounds of toffee? My God. I do love those fat toffees. They're good. <laughs> Later, from the book, Harry enjoyed the breakneck journey down to the Weasley's vault, but felt dreadful. Far worse than he had in Nocturne Alley when it was opened. There was a very small pile of silver sickles inside and just one gold galleon. Come on, Harry! Harry felt even worse when they reached his vault. He tried to block the contents from view <laughs> as he hastily shoved handfuls of coins into a leather bag. <laughs> like, Harry, loosen your grip on the cash. Literally, you didn't know you were rich, and now you can't even help a, like, a struggling family that is your best friend's family? You're watching her sweep the corners of this dusty vault to get, like, see if there's any coins that fell in there, and you're in there, like, Scrooge McDucking. <laughs> coins into your purse? Here's my defense of Harry. When Lockhart gives him the free set of books, he gives them to Ginny. That was wow, nice. Wow. That was nice. <laughs> Harry, little right. we love stingy you, Harry. guy. We love you, you cheap fuck. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Harry's flu network mishap, which puts him in the gloomy confines of Borgen and Burks, the shop in Nocturne Alley, the traffics yes. in Dark Artifacts, is... Another reminder that Harry remains a relative novice in the magical world. You know, despite all that he went through in his first year at Hogwarts, he is still ignorant about so many facets of magical life just due to the sheer lack of exposure and that still budding awareness. Everything that he still has to learn is a huge obstacle. It would be for anybody adjusting to this new life and constantly having to worry about an embarrassing misstep, but it is particularly worrisome for Harry, who is continuing to grasp that for him, a misstep that stems from a lack of knowledge could literally be fatal. Here's a helpful reminder. In the shop, Lucius and Draco Malfoy enter. It's a nice bit of serendipity that gives Harry and us a peek into the mindset of a person drawn to the dark arts, right? Draco says, everyone thinks he's so smart. Wonderful Potter. This scar and his broomstick. <laughs> Lucius says, you've told me this at least a dozen times already. And I would remind you that it's not prudent to appear less than fond of Harry Potter. Not when most of our kind regard him as the hero who made the Dark Lord disappear. This is an ominous exchange, right? Harry knows that Draco doesn't like him. It's obvious. Draco has told him to his face. But now Harry is beginning to realize that not all his enemies are as forthcoming. And some, in fact, may be masquerading as friends. Aside 
Draco becomes enamored with the Hand of Glory, which we will talk about more in the seven. Harry's inadvertent Malfoy eavesdropping also further illustrates an obstacle that he and others he cares about will face with increasing and distressing regularity and forcefulness over the course of this book and really, indeed, the entire story. Bigotry. When Malfoy tells Borgin that he is there to sell, not to buy, because he's in possession of some items that would, quote, embarrass him, if the ministry came calling, he also notes that he has not yet been raided because, quote, the name Malfoy still commands a certain respect. If certain names mean more, it must by definition be true that other names mean less in people's minds. This is, in essence, what Draco said to Harry in stone. Some wizarding families are better than others. The frightful implication of the Malfoy stance on wizarding blood is reinforced further by the heated and eventually physical exchange between Lucius and Arthur in the bookshop. After Draco's famous Harry Potter can't even go into a bookshop without making the front page taunt and Ginny's ensuing defense of Harry, the crowd around them swells. Malfoy issues a classist attack. Tehran, he says, I suppose your parents will go hungry for a month to pay for all of these. <laughs> Savage. Fucking... Like father, like son, right? Appealing to their lack of monetary prowess as the, the greatest indictment he can think of. And when Lucius and Arthur join the throng, Lucius also looks to cut Arthur down by attacking his earning ability. He says, busy time at the ministry, I hear. All those raids. I hope they're paying you overtime. And then he reaches into Ginny's cauldron and takes out her Beginner's Guide to Transfiguration, which is a, a very old, battered copy. Obviously not. Dear me, what's the use of being a disgrace to the name of wizard if they don't even pay you well for it? Savage! When Lucius goads Arthur for associating with muggles, in this case Hermione's parents, the men come to blows. And when the fight ends via Hagrid, Lucius, quote, was still holding Ginny's old transfiguration book. He thrust it at her, eyes glittering with mouths. Here, girl, take your book. It's the best your father can give you. <laughs> Fucking what a God. What a dick. This is a crucial moment for the plot as this is the instant in which Lucius smuggles the diary into Ginny's control. But Lucius's subterfuge won't be the only obstacle. His beliefs and what he and his ilk stand for will be an obstacle to good and light throughout the series. They got off so easy. I'm sorry the Malfoys got off too easy. Why were they not in jail after the first Wizarding War? That's what I don't understand. <laughs> Why are they not in Azkaban already? I don't give a shit about, oh, we, we were under the, I don't care. Sorry. Do you have the dark mark? Put him in Azkaban. That's it. That's all I want to hear. Worth noting, when Hagrid describes the mouthfuls, he says, rotten to the core. <laughs> the whole family. Everyone will die. No mouth is worth listening to her. Bad blood. That's what it is. Come on now. Let's get out of here. Even the good guys use blood arguments. Harry also encounters the obstacle that he has arguably grappled with the most since arriving at Hogwarts. Fame and the burden that that fame brings. Harry is still perplexed by fame and he feels really unworthy of the notoriety that comes with it. Gilderoy Lockhart, the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, is not burdened in this way. He is, <laughs> is spectacularly unburdened. By this. Spectacularly unburdened. Quite comfortable with his own fame and quite eager to exploit any opportunity to add to it. Consider that when we meet him, it's his book signing. We know it's you, dude, but he is surrounded by photos of his own smiling face. And when Lockhart sees Harry in the crowd, alerted to his presence, of course, by Ron being like, don't tell me to get out of the way, you dumbass daily profit photographer. Great stuff from Ron. 
Lockhart has no qualms whatsoever upon spotting Harry about hijacking Harry's wave. Ha <laughs> Together you and I are worth the front page. When young Harry here stepped into Flourish and Blots today, he only wanted to buy my autobiography, which I shall be happy to present to him now free of charge. <laughs> he had no idea that he would shortly be getting much, much more than my book, Magical Me. He and his schoolmates will, in fact, be getting the real Magical Me. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I have the great pleasure and pride in announcing that this September, I will be taking up the post of Defense Against the Dark Arts Teacher at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Lockhart is vain. Lockhart is pompous. Lockhart really embodies the corruptive force of fame. What do you think? Was Dumbledore maybe onto something trying to keep Harry away from all this for all those years? Lockhart is the best argument for Dumbledore being correct about placing Harry with the Dursleys. That and the protective spell. Yeah, that was also very key. The protective spell was very good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Chapter five, The Whomping Willow. It's ironic in this discussion of obstacles that perhaps the final obstacle that we will discuss, the barrier between platforms nine and ten, is the one that appears to be an obstacle but actually isn't or at least shouldn't be. The ride from the borough to King's Cross is delayed by the normal shenanigans inherent in attempting to take numerous teens and preteens on a road trip. I forgot this and I forgot that and oh, I, you got to go back and get this thing. The Weasleys plus Harry arrive with just enough time to make the train. Harry and Ron are the last to get to the barrier between the platforms and when they try to go through, bang! The wall is as solid as it appears to be. What the hell? Another awful moment for Hedwig. Yeah. Just like (sighs) slammed. Also, Hedwig is just, the thing I like about Hedwig is Hedwig doesn't mess around. When she's mad, she's like, I'm mad. Oh, yeah. And I'm just not fucking with you now. Like, get away from me. Hedwig, very very cat-like. One of the many things I love about Hedwig, it's like, I control this relationship. That's right. Does this have something to do with Dobby's warning? And the how and why of this will have to wait, obviously, because the train is leaving and the boys have to get to school. Ooh, luckily, mm. there's a flying car outside. No! An eternal obstacle. The brash, blinding confidence of youth. From Ron. What if mom and dad can't get back through to us? Well, Ron, bud, <laughs> what if you waited? Like, a minute. Like, literally one minute to find out. The train is gone. They're going to come back through. Just give it doesn't, 60 literally, seconds. Literally doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and then if they do come through, ask them for help. What if we just steal the car? <laughs> it is truly astonishing that Harry and Ron opt to fly away in the car, never thinking, as McGallion will note later, to send an owl to alert the Weasleys or the school in literally any other way. <laughs> When Mrs. Weasley scolded her sons earlier in this stretch of chapters for flying the car, she mentioned numerous times, numerous times, that they could have been seen. It does have an invisibility booster. The threat is clear. This concern seems to just have totally fled from Ron's and Harry's minds. Luna, were she around at this point, would surely blame the Raxperts. Harry and Ron's muggle check? Literally, not basically, literally boils down to them making sure that the one street that they are on at that very moment. It's downtown London. (laughs) It's fucking downtown London. There's literally two million people. Guys, (laughs) is anyone next to the car? Nope. Okay, we're good. 
both <laughs> when they, they push the invisibility booster, but that does not serve them for long. And when the invisibility booster craps out, they are vulnerable. Just imagine a car taking <laughs> off from like midtown Manhattan. Being like, okay, is 34th Street clear? So 42nd Street clear? <laughs> I have had the distinct pleasure of being to King's Cross Station in person. But let me tell you something. One thing I can say with certainty about King's Cross Station, really crowded. Yeah. Here's a slight aside. The dream of flight is an ancient storytelling device evoking freedom and ambition and overreach. Harry is never as content as he is upon his broom and the way Rowling describes flying from his perspective is wonderful. This is now as Ron and Harry take off in the Anglia. Quote, they looked at each other and started to laugh. For a long time, they couldn't stop. It was as though they had been plunged into a fabulous dream. This, thought Harry, was surely the only way to travel past swirls and turrets of snowy cloud in a car full of hot, bright sunlight with a fat pack of toffees in the glove compartment. That is just beautiful and evocative pr- writing. It's really great. And the prospect of seeing Fred and George's jealous faces when they landed smoothly and spectacularly on the sweeping lawn in front of Hogwarts Castle. Flight and, naturally, Quidditch. By extension, are Harry's only true escape in this world. But it's also ephemeral because what comes up, it's got to come down. Some of the story's most shocking moments, Hedwig's death, the reveal that Voldemort can fly without a broom, and so on and so forth, occur when that airborne island of peace is shattered. The Fort Anglia's sputtering and the ensuing crash into the Whomping Willow is a very literal obstacle, but more on the Whomping Willow momentarily. In the meantime, let's once again consider some of the obstacles that spring up from that moment. There's Ron's busted wand, which is, in essence, a death sentence in the wizarding world. Like, don't even bother waking up in the morning if you have a broken wand. Spellotape's not going to get it done, my dude. There is, of course, Snape's wrath. You know, Harry already felt that Snape was out to get him, and that belief has not wavered just because Harry learned at the end of Sorcerer's Stone that Snape was not actually trying to steal the stone or murder him. And after the epic, maybe he's been sacked, maybe he's ill, or maybe exchange, we are reminded that Harry's fame is often an obstacle for him because people like Snape and like Malfoy hold it against him. They wield it against him. Snape says, the train isn't good enough for the famous Harry Potter and his faithful sidekick Weasley. Wanted to arrive with a bang, did we, boys? It's fucking brutal stuff. Snape reveals that their flight was in the profit. Just, Not good. Just in the papers, guys, that's all. They were seen by muggles, in other words, and it's clear that their idiocy could be a problem for Mr. Weasley, particularly given his job at the ministry. I mean, here he is, like, modding cars without telling anyone and writing the laws in such a way that would allow him to do so. <laughs> <laughs> I admire the engineer. I like it a lot. Snape. Dear, dear. His own son. Harry felt as though he'd just been walloped in the stomach by one of the mad tree's larger branches. If anyone found out Mr. Weasley had bewitched the car, he hadn't thought of that. Yes, because you hadn't literally thought of anything. You just (laughs) ran to the car and stole it. Pause for one beat. My guy. Wait 10 seconds. They're going to come out. What do you think? They're going to get on the train and go to Hogwarts? They're coming out. (laughs) Jesus. They avoid expulsion, but facing Dumbledore's disappointment is a massive hurdle. Harry reflects that it actually would have been easier to face him if he'd shouted. That is a truth. That's how Harry processes anger. You know, he's lived his whole life with the Dursleys, his screaming household. It's very off-putting when someone that you respect greatly is extremely quiet, though you know they are mad at you. Nothing like disappointing dad. Nope. They are warned. Quote, do anything like this again. 
I will have no choice but to expel you. Do Except any- for the fact that I can't let you out of my sight right. ever. And so I'm definitely never going to expel you. Do anything <laughs> like fly a flying car into a tree. For kids who get into as much mischief as they did in year one, hearing this is legitimately an obstacle to their everyday lives at Hogwarts. At least they can count on the trusty medallion to not take any points. You'd think if Dumbledore knew about this, he'd be like, what? <laughs> Hold on a second. They stole a car, were seen by muggles, flew hours cross-country, and then smashed into a living magical tree that is very rare. The car, P.S., is nowhere to be found, currently roaming the forest, and you're going to take zero points from Gryffindor. Okay. I love the description when Harry, he basically makes the point, uh, Professor, technically terms not in session yet, so Gryffindor shouldn't suffer. Good try. And then the description is, Professor McGonagall gave him a piercing look, but he was sure she had almost smiled. Her mouth looked less (laughs) thin anyway. Yeah, she's like, you know my game. You know what I'm running here. Listen, she lost X amount of dollars (laughs) on Gryffindor last season with the Quidditch team getting blown out after Harry missed the last game. She's looking to make up those points, and she's not going to start in a hole like this. Come on. Come on. And then finally, Hedwig. What an obstacle for Hedwig to ever trust Harry again after the horrors that she had to endure in these chapters. Protect Hedwig! Some bad news. Oh, <laughs> Mal. Yeah? Of all the trees we could have hit, we had to get the one that hits back. Since that's our luck, please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads. Lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about the Whomping Willow. Ah, the Whomping Willow. Hey, I'm learning to drive. Not always easy. No. Who hasn't tapped mom's minivan into a curb or the garage wall? Lucky for us muggles, the garage wall doesn't tap back. The Whomping Willow? Well, let's check in with our young Padawan driver, Ronald Weasley. Quote, can you believe our luck, said Ron miserably, <laughs> bending down to pick up scabbers. Of all the trees we could have hit, we had to get one that hits back. Indeed, the Whomping Willow is part of the proud fantasy tradition of taking an object familiar in our world, in this case, weeping willows, and injecting one magical twist to make the object at once recognizable and unique, relatable and strange. The official Pottermore description of the willow's magical properties reads, quote, sentience, semicolon, can attack people, (laughs) end quote. (laughs) And yeah, well, that about sums it up, doesn't it? When the Ford Anglia crashes into the Whomping Willow, the Whomping Willow knows and it responds in kind. Quote, the tree they had hit was attacking them. Its trunk was bent almost double and its gnarled bows were pummeling every inch of the car it could reach. Harry observes that the tree is, quote, ancient, and Snape refers to it as, quote, old and valuable. Yet we know from Professor Lupin in Prisoner of Azkaban that the tree has not, in fact, been at Hogwarts very long. Quote, they planted the Whomping Willow the same year that I arrived at Hogwarts, Lupin says, referring to what we can calculate as the 1971 school year. Quote, people used to play a game trying to get near enough to touch the trunk. The tree was planted, of course, Because of Lupin, as we learn in Azkaban, the Whomping Willow guards the entrance to the Shrieking Shack, where Lupin would go monthly to transform into a werewolf, and where, to the ignorance of the astoundingly unobservant Hogwarts professors, (laughs) his fellow marauders would join him after learning to become anime guy. 
Whether you picture the version of the tree featured in the Chamber of Secrets movie or the redesigned seasonal spiff we see in Azkaban (laughs) or a creation all your own, the willow's signature flailing branches and bending trunk have surely taken root in your mind. The only way to freeze those limbs and thus safely enter the tunnel below the tree is to touch a knot on the trunk, typically with a long branch, or if you are lucky enough to know a dope half-neasel like Crookshanks, by asking him to dart in and tap it with his paw. By the way, we presume that Sirius, who knew the tree's secrets from his days gallivanting about with Lupin and co., shared this information with his feline bestie. Speaking of Sirius, our boy, much to our collective shame and horror, once tried to use the willow and the werewolf waiting at the end of its tunnel to spook slash maybe kill or at least grievously maim our other boy, Severus Snape. Sirius told Snape about the knot's power to immobilize the tree, and only James Potter's intervention prevented Snape from meeting a fully transformed Lupin at the other end. This is the life-saving incident that Dumbledore tells Harry about at the end of Stone. Tragically, poetically, Snape's actual death will occur in the very shrieking shack where he avoided this mortal incident as a student. This time, instead of James Potter saving him, Harry Potter will be there, looking down at him with Lily's eyes. As a student, Snape was not the only one to escape harm. During the Marauders' years at school, a Hogwarts pupil named Davy Gudgeon, (laughs) this is a tough name there, Davy Gudgeon, reportedly almost lost an eye, trying to get close enough to the willow to touch its trunk. And after that incident, all the other students were forbidden, warned off from ever trying to approach the tree. Given Snape's personal history with the Whomping Willow, it is notable to see him so aggressively act as the Willow's champion after the crash in Chamber. Quote, I noticed in my search of the park that considerable damage seems to have been done to a very valuable Whomping Willow, Snape says. Totally hand-waving, Ron's ensuing, that tree did more damage to us, reply. And when Dumbledore arrives in Snape's study, the potions master doubles down on his self-assigned role as the tree's protector, telling Dumbledore that those boys, not only did they flout the decree, They, quote, cause serious damage to an old and valuable tree. Listen, anything to try to get Harry expelled. Why, though, does Snape refer to the tree as very old if it's only been at Hogwarts for Uh two-some decades? Possibly the tree was relocated from elsewhere and planted on the grounds? The very valuable part is much easier to track. In Goblet of Fire, we learn that Mrs. Weasley was, quote, intrigued by the Whomping Willow, which had been planted after she had left school. So clearly this is a rare item, a notable one, that would catch your eye and lead you to want to know more. Though we know from Professor Lockhart's boast later in Chamber that it is not a one-of-one. Take the value of this statement for what it's worth based on the source. Lockhart is a liar. But he does imply that the Whomping Willow is actually a species. Quote, oh, hello there, he called, beaming around at the assembled students. Just been showing Professor Sprout the right way to doctor a Whomping Willow. But I don't want you running away with the idea that I'm better at herbology than she is. I just happen to have met several of these exotic plants in my travel. Get out of here. Several. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just happened to have uh, obliviated another wizard who has met several of these exotic plants on his travels, more likely. Harry, Ron, Hedwig, Scabbers, even the Fort Anglia were lucky enough to escape their encounter with the Willow with their lives intact. Not everyone or everything is so lucky. When Harry's Nimbus 2000 blows off course in Azkaban, the Willow annihilates it. Harry gets kindling back. The willow feels pain too, though. Its branches function in essence as limbs, and when they're damaged, they must be treated and cared for as such. Professor Sprout applies bandages and slings to help the willow heal after the Anglia's crash. So if you, dear listener, have yet to heal from the willow's role in a 
utterly confounding cursed child alternate timeline plot. <laughs> Maybe Pomona Sprout can help heal you too. The, the words cursed child alternate timeline <laughs> plot just make my eye twitch. Jason? Yes. I have a few uh, items at my home that might embarrass me if uh, the ministry were to call. Is it a dildo? <laughs> Is it a dildo, Mr. Malfoy? Double-headed dildo? Triple-headed? Quadruple-headed? All probably. Oh my. Every, every dildo in the Malfoy household is snake-themed, presumably. Yes. Ooh. <laughs> Cobra-headed dildo? I also have a few items I want to highlight from these opening chapters. So let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Chamber chapters one through five. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first. Number one, the Borgen and Burke scene features numerous dark items Uh that will go on to play key roles in the series. Draco becomes enamored with one in particular, the Hand of Glory, which has its roots in real-life legend. These are desiccated hands. The folklore is it's the hand of a hanged man that is dried and then kept for purposes that are weird. Uh, So it's a withered human hand resting on a cushion that gives light only to the one holding it. It's a boon for the thief, of course. Draco, at some point off-page, acquires the hand using it, in Half-Blood Prince to guide the Death Eaters into the school through the Room of Requirements. Some obstacles just hide in plain sight. There's also the opal necklace, quote, caution, do not touch, cursed, that Malfoy will try to smuggle into the school in Prince in the process nearly killing Katie Bell. Tough look for her. And of course, there's the vanishing cabinet, which Harry hides in, in which we know Malfoy sees because he walks towards it, almost opens it before his father calls him away. The nature of the Lucius Borgen exchange about the Hand of Glory is also highly notable in terms of what future actually awaits Draco and what Lucius and Narcissa will do to spare him from it. Quote, insert a candle and it gives light only to the holder, best friends of thieves and plunderers. Your son has fine taste, sir. I hope my son will amount to more than a thief or a plunderer, Borgen, said Malfoy coldly. Well, you got your wish. I am honestly in awe. I mean, all of those items that are mentioned in the second book play huge roles in Half-Blood Prince. Also, emblematic of the chiastic structure, the mirror device for storytelling, where, you know, book one and seven share these elements, books two and six, et cetera, et cetera. Number two, devastates me. Absolutely devastates me to even mention this, but to honor her memory, I feel compelled. After the privilege drive jailbreak, Harry tells Ron to let Hedwig out of her cage so that she can stretch her wings. The description reads, quote, George handed the hairpin to Ron, and a moment later, Hedwig soared joyfully out of the window to glide alongside them like a ghost. Hedwig, of course, will die in the air. This is foreshadowing that moment. Number three, observation. The Wizarding World is... Absolutely lousy with uncomfortable ways to travel. Brooms and thestrals regularly to freezing riders and also brooms like it's a broom and you've got it wedged like in your crotch. (laughs) Like, can we get a saddle on this thing? Apparition is dangerous and painful. It's like being sucked through a drain. Port keys also, you know. That pull in your navel. That pull in the navel. The night bus makes you vomit. Literally. Even the carts and gringots are terrifying. And flu powder from the book. It felt as though... He were being sucked down a giant drain. He seemed to be spinning very fast. Hard pass on all of this. Haggard's motorbike doesn't hold up in Hallows. Yeah. You could make the case, hey, what about the Hogwarts Express? That's great. Yeah? 
Check in with me after you see what the trolley witch is up to in Cursed yeah. Child, people. Number four, a few Dobby-specific bits of foreshadowing here. First, when Harry tries to calm Dobby by saying that he will be safe with Dumbledore. Don't worry, Hogwarts is fine. They're yeah. always telling me how safe it is at Hogwarts. Quote, Dobby's voice dropped to an urgent whisper. There are powers Dumbledore doesn't. Powers no decent wizard. He trails off. But this is an important reminder here that the belief in Dumbledore's goodness is so widespread that it extends even beyond the human species. Ah, what don't they know? Next, quote, with a crack like a whip, Dobby vanished. Okay, that is a hint of something that George will go on to state outright, which is that elf apparition and elf magic are different from wizarding magic. Because this action that Dobby takes in Privet Drive does not register with the ministry. Harry's letter is specifically about a hover charm, not about apparition. So presumably... They're not detecting that particular bit of Dobby's magic. Why does that matter? Well, because it shows us that that specific method of an elf apparating is unique. And that will prove crucial time and again. Dobby will be able to apparate into Hogwarts when witches and wizards cannot do that. And of course, in Deathly Hallows, he will be able to apparate into the basement of Malfoy Manor. Another Dobby bit here. Regarding Harry's dream in Chapter 2... He feels like he is trapped at Privet Drive, like he's unable to do magic, stuck in a cage. The key part, though, Dobby telling him in this dream, Harry Potter is safe there, sir. Well, it turns out Harry actually is safe at Privet Drive thanks to Lily's ongoing protective charm. Harry won't come to learn this from Dumbledore for many years, but it is already yeah. true. Many, many years. Many, many. Too many years. Several haircuts. <laughs> And finally, Fred and George tell Harry that house elves usually belong to rich families and come with big manners. And Harry thinks to himself he could just see Malfoy strutting around a large manor. Of course, Harry will find out in very painful fashion that Malfoy does indeed strut around a large manor. Number five. When Dumbledore shames Harry and Ron, he says that while he's not expelling them, he is writing to both of their families. So fast forward to order when Dumbledore writes, remember my last, would that technically refer to... This correspondence, not the explanatory letter he left at Privet Drive, JK has clarified this from her personal website. She says, it has been suggested that I am wrong in saying that Dumbledore's last letter was the one he left on the doorstep with baby Harry and that he has sent a letter since then concerning Harry's illegal flight to school. However, both Dumbledore and I differentiate between letters sent to the Dursleys as a couple and messages directed to Petunia alone. And that's my final word on the subject, though I doubt it will be yours. I fucking love her. Yeah. Legend. Number six. The kiddo spot Percy reading Prefects Who Gained Power. And Ron <laughs> tells them how ambitious Percy is, that he wants to be Minister of Magic one day. couple things here. First, that ambition of Percy's will quickly stop just being a punchline. It will be the cause of a devastating family rift. Also, Ron, for his part, will think that being a prefect is... Plenty fascinating when he becomes one in Order of the Phoenix. And then finally, it's actually someone else attached to Ron who will go on to become Minister of Magic. Bum, bum, bum. Hermione Granger. Number seven. These chapters are so chock full of delightful bits of foreshadowing that we have to go lightning round rapid fire here in the seventh item. First item, dung foreshadowing. From the book, what a night, he mumbled, groping for the teapot as they all sat down around him. Nine raids, nine. That old Mundungus Fletcher tried to put a hex on me when I had my back turned. Oh, shady, fucker. Yeah, shady fucker. Next, numerous mentions of the Weasley family ghoul who will end up impersonating a spattergroid-stricken Ron in Hallows. Instead of, like, actual birth control, I think they just get ghouls, and that just makes it so you don't want to do anything. 
Next, explosions from Fred and George's bedroom. Early Weasley Wizard Wheezes mm-hmm. experimentation. Probably it obviously so. is. Yeah. Next, when Snape asks about the car, Harry thinks to himself, this wasn't the first time Snape had given Harry the impression of being able to read minds. We talked about this in Sorcerer's Stone also. Legitimacy, occlumency, so much foreshadowing. Next, they had almost reached the highway when Ginny shrieked that she'd left her diary. We see early how attached Ginny is to this object. Also, speaking of Ginny, Potter, you've got yourself a girlfriend, drawled Malfoy. And Ginny went scarlet. Also, Mm. Ginny, the first time she sees Harry in the kitchen of the burrows, screeches and runs into the other room. Love is love, you know? It's a great gif also, that the gif from the movie of that (laughs) moment. Next. When Harry receives the ministry letter about his improper use of magic, really Dobby's, it is from Mafalda Hopkirk. This is who Hermione will impersonate during the trio's infiltration of the ministry in Deathly Hallows. Next, Vernon shuts Harry's school things in the cupboard in the stairs, once again using that room to hide the magic that has taken root in his home. And finally, though probably not finally, there are probably a million more, Mentions of memory charms, mentions of giant spiders as well. Both of those will be key later in Chamber. Oh, yeah, they will. Sorry, Ron. Mal? Yeah? Imagine a wizard buying a rusty old car and telling his wife all he wanted to do was take it apart just to see how it worked. That's all I'm doing. I'm just in there taking it apart. That's all. While really what he was doing was enchanting it to make it earn binge mode winner honors. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature that compelled us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup to the Weasley family. All of them, except for Percy. Percy, uh, I mean, Percy is just jacking off. Why can't he just do that? (laughs) Not everything goes perfectly, of course, for the Weasleys in this section. There's Percy who's just doing shit in his room. No one knows about it. Everybody's concerned about it. Arthur gets in trouble with his wife and at work, and as we all discover, has kind of like fudged the laws so that he can build magical shit in his home. Ron breaks his wand and gets attention, and Ginny inadvertently brings a piece of Tom Riddle's soul back to Hogwarts. Whoops! Yeah! (laughs) That's a bad one. Yeah. (laughs) But they did a lot of good stuff, too. Just put Tom Riddle's soul aside for a second. Let's focus on the good work that the Weasleys did. Obviously, Fred, George, and Ron successfully rescue Harry from the Dursleys. Should they have been flying the car? Maybe not. Did they show bravery and a stroke of mischievous but well-intentioned friendship to do so? Yeah, Mm. and they deserve credit for it. They successfully fly halfway across the country and back, thus proving, by the way, that that shady experiment of Arthur's that you're shitting on kind of worked until the invisibility booster falters. And then the car crashed. Well, but it was a really long journey. It was long enough for them to get thirsty. (laughs) Uh, The Weasleys showcase a deft ability to mix magic with muggle skills and technology. Fred and George know how to pick locks without a wand. And Arthur creates a vehicle that travels both by magical means and combustion. They still need to use the wheels to steer. It runs out of gas and therefore crashes, even though, like, Arthur doesn't know what a phone or a parking meter is. (laughs) They've got this delightful, this Quidditch paddock set up. You know, they're using apples to play Quidditch. Very charming. Just everything about the burrow is so homey and warm and welcoming and wonderful. This is (laughs) basically—this is other than Hogwarts. The burrow will be the thing that really becomes home for Harry. It is beautiful. Ginny gets sorted into Gryffindor, so shouts to Ginny. Yeah, keeping it in the family. And they live in the best house Harry's ever seen, and in his— 
Quote from the book, his month at the borough had been the happiest of his life, even happier than his first year at Hogwarts. This is a key point in differentiating Harry from Voldemort. Early in Chamber, Harry sounds a lot like Voldy and how he considers Hogwarts to be his greatest home. But Voldy never had or wanted friends or family. Here, Harry has both. And while he met the Weasleys briefly at King's Cross the previous year, this month is when he truly gains a family. Beautiful. All right, friends, it is ingenious, really. How many ways muggles have found of getting along without binge mode? Huge thanks, as always, to our producer, Isaac Lee, researcher Zach Cram, who help us unseal the barrier every day. We hope that you all had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing Chamber of Secrets chapters 6 through 10. Until then, remember, you've heard of binge mode's greatness, but of its goodness, you never knew. Percy! Hold on a second. I'm coming out. Hold on. Percy, what are you doing? Uh, polishing the badge again, you know. Just polishing the badge. I need a rag. When there's a sock on the door, I'm polishing the, the badge. Mom.